0: So I'm not Chad. You know that because I'm prettier than him. Uh, and uh, he, he's having a baby. He had a baby at 7.36, so he has plenty of time to get here. So we can give a, a hard time for not showing up. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure of the appropriate time to smack talk because it's necessary. So it's really not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I, f- I figure I'd give him a few more hours before I tell him how I'm just going to crush him into the ground. Um, but I'm going to be doing a, a three-part series to give him time to do that whole bonding thing. Uh, and it's going to be on miracles, uh, both big and small. And uh, I, I want to start with uh, just a story of uh, this man who was staring into a crib with his newborn child. And, and the wife is seeing this moment where the man is just staring out, this new father is just staring into this crib, and she could see the look on his face. It was pure awe, oh, pure wonder, you know, like, like these percolating tears beginning to form. And she, she just marveled at this. It was a beautiful moment. And so she goes and she puts her arm around his back. And she says, what are you thinking? You know, wh- what's going through your head? And, and he could barely, barely get the words out. He was overwhelmed. He said, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that somebody can make a crib like this just for $66.95. <laughs> And just, just like this guy, sometimes in our own lives, we miss the miracle. We're seeing something else entirely. And, and that's really what this, this sermon series is going to be about in large part. It's going to be about uh, noticing and appreciating miracles in our own lives, both big and small. But, but not just in our own lives. And this is... A, a, a point I want to make before we really broach the topic of miracles. Thanks for turning me up. I'm sorry I wasn't loud enough. Um, And that's our Christian stories. I preached a few months back. I know a lot of you weren't here. And uh, I talked about the importance of stories. And um, Billy Graham... I don't want to say anything bad about Billy Graham. Billy Graham is a great man. He was and is a great man, and Christianity owes so much to his efforts. But there's just this one thing that's a little unfortunate that happened uh, as a result of his evangelical strategy, and that was he emphasized personal faith so much that new Christians, uh, in large part, were detached when it came to the larger Christian narrative, the larger Christian fellowship and community of stories. And, and in many ways, this was needed because people needed to hear that, that God was personally invested in their lives, that he knew them intimately, and that he cared and loved them just the same. So this, this message was needed uh, but as a result, uh, many people go through life only hearing their story, and they only know about their story. And this, this could be good for, for some people, like if, if your story is just full of miracles, that's awesome. See, but at other times and for other people, when they look at their lives, they may see a conspicuous absence. They survey the vast landscape of their life and all they really see is a lot of brokenness and a lot of hurt and a lot of missed opportunities for miracles. Even in our own congregation where you know, people have lost loved ones, have gone through miscarriages, um, these things hurt and they, live, they, they leave these huge, gaping scars in our life. See, and that's part of our Christian story too. If we learn to share our, our pain and our hurt and those stories with other people in fellowship and community, maybe the miracle in the story of another could help bring you peace and healing. So in many ways, we need to share our Christian stories because um, that's really important. So when I, when I get into miracles, I really want that to be something that we keep in mind because miracles, are. it's really just not about what's happening in your life, but it's what's happening in Christianity all around the world in the lives of believers and community. Um, and because I love stories so much, I usually talk a lot about stories, um, so let me get to uh, one of them. There's going parental advisory. I, I have a story in here that my wife said I should say is kind of scary. Uh, so keep that in mind if, you know, ears need to be plugged uh, for that. Uh, but, but before we go, let's, let's define miracle a little bit because I, I don't want to be... I've had professors who go like a whole course talking about smear pluffs and only at the very end do they tell you what it is. So you're trying to connect all the dots, like, okay, I don't know what he's talking about, but I know it has this feature and this feature. Uh, and then he defines it at the very end. So I don't want to be that guy. So let's, let's start. The Greek word often translated as miracle in the Bible is simeon, and that most directly translates as sign, but the Bible uses it as a sign of Christ or the kingdom of God or, or something within the Christian narrative, confirmation of it. So when we look at the, the many miracles of the Bible, we, we do see scientifically unexplainable phenomenon. But that's not the point. Miracles are not just things that cannot be scientifically explained. So being vor- born of a virgin, changing water into wine, healing of the royal official son, healing of the uh, Capernaum demoniac, uh, healing of Peter's mother-in-law, healing the sick during the evening, catching a lot of fish, healing a leper, uh, raising um, people from the dead. These are things that Jesus did, and they all really do defy scientific scrutiny. But like I said, it's not the point. So here's the, here's the sort of scary story. It's too bad my father's not here to, to correct me if I'm wrong. So we'll assume I'm right on every detail. In 2007, he wrote a book called Soaring in the Spirit. And it's really about revitalizing Christianity in an emerging culture. It's, it is a great book. Um, he's not paying me to say this. It was in 2007, so I don't know if he's still making money from this book. But um, in, in one of the chapters, um, he tells. A story about uh, he and his co-worker Manuel, um, a friend and co-worker, and they were at his house and like any bored teenagers, they had just recently graduated high school, they had a fantastically stupid idea. They thought, you know what, <laughs> we're bored, why don't we go down to the local retail store and buy a Ouija board? because that's fun. If you don't know what a Ouija board is, it's this, this board that has the alphabet, it has yes, no, it has these uh, other symbols on it, and it has this l- a little pointer that you put your hand on, and that basically will move um, ostensibly by spirits. Spirits will move this thing and answer questions for you. Uh, so, you know, nothing like a good old-fashioned seance when you're bored. So they get get this, and they put their hands on it, but the problem is spirits apparently are not very uh, concerned about these two because it's not working. And so any sort of lingering suspicion that my father and Manuel might have had about the spiritual world was certainly uh, dying down to nothing. But then, see, Manuel didn't live alone. He lived at his parents' house. They weren't home, but his sisters just got home. And his older sister... Anna saw what they were doing. And she's like, Oh, a Ouija board. Cool. You should let Maria play, the younger sister. That really works for her. So, okay, we know what these girls do in their free time, too. And it's really cool to know that apparently this little girl is pretty tight knit with the spiritual world, right? The spirits love her. Whatever. So Manuel gets up and and lets Maria sit down and play with my father. And when they both put their hands on it, it lit up. It just moved. It was going at unearthly speeds, answering questions. And they were just innocuous questions. Uh, and, And at one point, my father asked a question, a yes or no question that he wanted the answer to be yes but see the planchette, which is the the pointer was moving towards the no and you know no, no, no my my father says this can't happen I want it to be yes so he puts his, his strength against it and he's trying to move it towards the yes that was the moment he realized that though his hand and Maria's were on the planchette. It was not theirs that was moving it. There is no way that that little girl's fingers could produce the strength that was being forced against him. So that that was scary for my dad. And then he continued to be surprised. As they asked more serious questions, and the board knew names of family members and people that Maria couldn't have possibly known. And so he's getting a little freaked out, so he finally asks Who is this? This is the devil. And what I find encouraging about this story right here is that my dad is a genius, little certifiable genius. But it goes to show you that even geniuses make really stupid decisions because he wanted to dig deeper. See, Maria, she lifted her hand up like, no, uh-uh, I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I don't want anything to do with the devil. And my dad said, oh, no, 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 come on. Let's just, let's just, I mean, come on, let's check this out, you know. One, one more question. And so she puts her hand back on and they say, is this really the devil? Yes. Okay, but are you going to hurt us? No. I mean, that has to be encouraging. The devil, the father of lies, telling you he's not going to hurt you. Right? So that really should put any sort of apprehension at ease. Uh, and apparently it worked for Maria. Right? Oh, okay, the devil said he's not going to hurt us. I'm good. I'll play. Uh, so she puts her hand back on, and they ask, "Okay, so if you're the devil, you mu- you must have a lot of power." Yes. Okay. I mean, would would you show us a sign of? Okay, and so you know, uh, will we will we hear it? Will we see it? You will see it. So it goes on, and uh, uh, they find out that, okay, something's apparently going to happen at seven. And they take a break, uh, and they, this is a weird detail. They take a break and go eat bologna sandwiches in, in the kitchen. Um, and, he, and he includes that detail, bologna sandwiches. It's like, okay, uh, I would not be able to eat at that time. Um, but one of the things that my dad notices when he's in the kitchen uh, is he notices the, the refrigerator has all of these fruit magnets that are just sort of randomly scattered across the bottom of the refrigerator. And the, the, the refrigerator you can see from the living room that they were playing in. Uh, this is called foreshadowing, FYI. Um, so they end up going back and uh, they ask, you know, are you going to uh, show us? Are you, are you still there? Yes, yes. And, you know, 7.30 comes around. And then it's... The the planchette becomes more deliberate. It's not friendly in any way. It says, turn out the lights. See me, I'm like, no, (laughs) Uh -uh. I'm not turning out the lights. But my dad looks at Manuel, gives him the, "Mm mm-hmm, do it. So he did. He turned the lights out. And they sit there in probably the tensest darkness they'd ever been in. And a few minutes pass, and they're probably freaking out, thinking, okay, no, nothing's happening, turn the lights back on. right?" So they turn the lights back on, everything seems normal, and then Maria points and screams. And they turn around, and on that refrigerator, all of those randomly scattered fruit magnets are now in eerie clarity on top of the fridge, spelling the word, Ouija. And they, they ask, is this the sign? Yes. And then it says, look for another at midnight. See, but at midnight, my dad was in his own bed, staring up at the ceiling, eyes just wide open and terrified. And then he remembered the words of his old catholic school teacher father aquinas the only way to defeat evil is with the one power in the universe that is greater god so in that moment he didn't beg the devil for no more signs he prayed to christ he said jesus please protect me i don't want any more signs And no more signs came that night. And what's so instructive about this story is that while there is certainly an element in there that's not scientifically explainable, this sort of weird supernatural movement of fruit magnets on a refrigerator but if we're just going to say, that's the miracle, we're, we're, all we're really saying is that the demonstration of the devil's power is a miracle. And I thought, that's, that's not a miracle. That just points to the devil. See, but the Bible uses miracle as the things that point to Christ, So the miracle was not what God allowed, allowing a, a spirit, a demonic spirit to move fruit magnets. The miracle was what that event pointed to. God knew that by allowing this event to happen, that my dad would not be drawn to go investigate Satanism. Instead, he would be drawn to Christ. He would remember the words of his old school teacher that the only power in the universe that is greater than evil is God. And it would be Christ to whom my father prayed. That's the miracle. The miracle is that it pointed to Christ. And my dad actually goes on in the book to discuss that From that experience, he believes that God will ultimately use any circumstance it takes to bring a believer to Christ. Um, He points out uh, Judas Iscariot, who was induced uh, by the devil to betray Jesus. Judas turned over Jesus, his friend at the time, to be beaten and killed by the authorities, and he thought, I am putting the ultimate end to the ministry of Jesus, But in reality, he was bringing about the final moments of God's glorious atonement. God has a proven track record of turning evil situations into miraculous salvation. He turns evil situations into miraculous salvation. And, and actually, uh, Paul even says this much. Had, had the evilness of the world, the malice of men known that their actions of crucifying Christ would have been bringing about the final atonement, they never would have done it. Had they known that God was sovereignly orchestrating His plan through their actions, they would not have done it. 1 Corinthians, Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of the age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So God turns situations, evil situations, into miraculous salvation. And miracles can be brought about not just by what God does, But not just by what God does, but also by what he allows. So if if that was my sort of long-winded point number one, uh, this is going to be point number two. And it's that miracles often require uh, fear, pain, hurt, and brokenness. There's usually some sort of tragedy involved, and and that's really our whole Christian story. It's predicated on the idea of our fallenness, on our depravity, and on a world that is full of hurt and brokenness. Paul again says in 1 Corinthians, no, I'm sorry, Romans eight twenty-two. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. We need deliverance. We need healing. We need saving. We need a Savior. And out of the more than 40 miracles uh, that Jesus uh, performed in the New Testament, there's only about five that didn't have a a person involved uh, with some sort of tragic story. Uh, And the ones I can think of are uh, the virgin birth, uh, the withering of the fig tree, uh, the water and the wine of course the walking on water and the catching a fish with a coin in its mouth all the, all the other miracles really have some sort of broken situation that God is fixing and I'm reminded of uh, the blind man in John nine one three, where it says Jesus passed by he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him Rabbi who sinned this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, the path from tragedy to miracle is often tumultuously unknown. We don't know how long we'll have to endure tragedy before a miracle. Um, we just don't know. But we, we have to be optimistic in our faith. See, Jesus does go on to heal the man, but when we see this situation, what we notice is that this man was born blind. So he was living with the tragedy of darkness his whole life until a single moment that tragedy was turned into the miracle of new vision. So in our own lives we may be living the tragedy, but we have to be optimistic that that tragedy in a moment could be turned to a miracle. I'm also reminded of Nebuchadnezzar and, and how we ought to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a, uh, a horrible king uh, who did a lot of horrible things. And one of the horrible things that he was going to do was if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow to his contrived golden idol, he was just going to throw them into an unbearably hot furnace. And uh, he says this, now, if you're ready, Nebuchadnezzar does. Now, if you're ready at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lair, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace, blazing, a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? Uh, He teed that one up for them, obviously, because there is a God who can deliver them. And they respond saying, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us, not out of your hand, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that there are not, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they had the belief that God could save them, the anticipation that he would save them, and the faith to endure it nonetheless. Living your life believing that miracles can happen, anticipating them, and having the faith to endure tragedy nonetheless, is far greater than living your life believing you'll never experience one. And here's an interesting point. The reality is, is that if you live your life believing that miracles can't happen and won't happen, you're actually working to ensure that you'll never experience that in your life. In Mark 6, 5 through 6, when, Jesus, when his, uh, Jesus could not do any miracles there except by his hands a few, heal a few sick people. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So God has, in many respects, conditioned miracles on the faith of those receiving them. And here we have a, a prime example where the condition of faith was not met and miracles in that area were significantly reduced. If we live our lives faithlessly and determined in our belief that no miracles can happen, we are actually participating in willfully creating a miracle-less reality. Not a miraculous, a miracle-less reality. Uh, So here are my, my points thus far since I know they're not Illustrated in the most coherent fashion. The number one is a miracle is not just something that defies scientific understanding; it is rather the manifestation or or a sign that points to Christ. L- Let me talk about what got me into looking at miracles to begin with. I have this weird uh, tendency. Uh, where I am hypercritical uh, I, of a lot of things. Uh, I, a lot of just, I'm intellectually very cynical of, of any sort of truth claims, but I'm really drawn to the fantastic, uh, to the miraculous. And so I'm that guy who will listen to your story. If you have a miraculous story, I'm that guy who will give you the one-word answer, wow. Like, Wow. And that's because wow is a really safe word. Wow is either like, wow, I think you're crazy. Or wow, that's a really cool story. Or wow, are you serious right now? Like, you are on another level. So wow is my go-to word because it's nebulous, it's very judicious, and I don't have to explain anything. It's just wow, but if, if I had to, if pressed, I don't want to be that guy who says, that is a cool story, but I don't think I believe it. And it's not that I would be calling you a liar. I would be thinking, well, maybe there's some other uh, scientific explanation. Maybe you're misinterpreting a perfectly explainable natural phenomenon. So that, that's kind of been how I go about things. And so I, I've studied all kinds of miracles, literally from... Um, Incredible jumping, you know, miraculous healings, uh, people randomly just spontaneously getting golden teeth, uh, uh, manna appearing in Bibles, and uh, people having prophetic knowledge of their missing car keys. Um, just, I know where it is. It's in the fridge. Um, okay. And, and so I've always been just really, really critical of these things. And in and, and studying... Uh, I came up upon uh, NDEs, near-death experiences, which was a really big one. And I thought, wow, these are really cool stories. These are about uh, people who have literally died, experienced medical death. Either their heart is completely stopped for uh, a certain duration, and then you, your brain starts, stops receiving uh, oxygenated blood, and you, your brain waves uh, aren't there anymore. And these people experience things during that state of medical death. Um, There is uh, a third stage. There's heart death, brain death, and then there's biological death, which is when you're literally decomposing, um, which um, maybe uh, the the raising of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus could be uh, examples of people who've experienced biological death and uh, were raised. But The accounts that we're dealing with are medical deaths, so either your brain is not functioning anymore or your heart is stopped for a long period of time. And these people see like heavenly utopia, bright lights, out-of-body experiences. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. These stories are cool. But they cannot be externally verified. There is no independent and objective evidence for their existence. Therefore, I am skeptical. Right? And I was. And while I was doing my research, I came upon a lecture by Gary Habermas. And uh, Gary, I knew Gary Habermas from school, and I thought, Gary Habermas, he's a well-respected New Testament scholar, big time in the philosophy of religion, and he specializes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is this highbrow academic doing talking about near-death experiences? And then his lecture, he started talking about all the things that I was concerned about. He was talking about, you know, well, there's not independent evidence for these things. In fact, some of the experiences can be replicated uh, using uh, magnetic over the uh, right temporal lobe of the brain where people can have sort of -of out-of-body experiences. So some of it can be scientifically replicated. I thought, yes, 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 that's the problem. And then he said, but I'm going to categorize these as non-veridical. I said, non-veridical, which is it's of like non-truthful? I mean, what do you mean non-veridical? And what he meant was there's another category called veridical or veridical, depending on which dictionary you look to have pronounced the word for you. Um, And I thought, well, what are these categories? Well, the the non-veridical category were ones that People have cool experiences, but nothing can be independently verified. And I thought, well, then what could be possibly independently verified in the vertical categories? And he said, well, there are countless examples of people who have died and have experiences of the real world that can later be objectively verified. Like somebody, for instance, having an out-of-body experience when they die on the on the a uh, medical counter, and they go up to the roof and say, oh, there's a pair of blue shoes here. That's interesting. They go back uh, when they're resuscitated, and they say, whoa, I had this weird experience. I, I saw bright lights. I saw all this heaven-like utopia. Oh, and I also saw a pair of blue shoes on the roof when I was going up. Okay? And they go, and they say, wow, there, there's a pair of blue shoes on this roof. Other uh, countless examples of people going and hearing jokes that people say in the waiting room that aren't probably very appropriate and it's about them and then calling them out on it. By the way, hey, when I was in there, I came out here and I saw that you said that joke. That was mean but pretty funny. High five, right? Um, that, that kind of stuff I was fascinated with. I said, whoa, we have countless examples that can be independently verified. There is external and objective evidence for the existence of these uh, experiences, at least the uh, certain portions of it. And so I said, wow, we actually have evidence of something that, given our present system of of science, cannot be scientifically verified. And and, And that's when I thought to myself, I said, well, wait. I mean, is it a miracle because it can't be scientifically verified? I mean, because these other non vertical experiences that can't be scientifically verified, they, they were very real experiences for the people. In fact, so many of them changed their life entirely. It radically altered their perception of existence and, and that there is a God. This experience was so real to these people. And am I just going to say, well, that's not miraculous because... Um, Science can account for a lot of those factors. These ones, however, can't be scientifically verified, so they're miraculous. And he thought, no. No, 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 no. It's not the how of an event. See, the how of an event can make it great, but only the why can make it miraculous. Why did this event occur? In the story of my father, why it occurred... The how was great, the moving the magnets and stuff. That was great power. But the why was miraculous that he was brought to Christ. It's the why that makes things miraculous. And so I thought, you know what? That's, that idea that it, you know, of, of science, it having not to be scientifically verifiable, that's just, that's not true. That's not true because that experience was real for people. It was why it happened. Um, And the second point I made is that we do not know if or when miracles will occur, only that we should live in faithful anticipation that they will. And third, a worldview that presupposes that God does not interact with the world in a miraculous way works in sort of a circular way to verify or confirm what it presupposes. In other words, if you have faith that it will not occur, you are ensuring the likelihood that it won't. That's what the Bible teaches us. But there's still a fourth point to make. Uh, this, this is a Costco story, and I always, I always have them. Uh, I don't have my name badge, which I usually won't put on. I work for Costco, for those who don't know. Um, but I, I have a young um, Muslim friend, a coworker of mine. Uh, she knows that I'm Christian, and I know that she's Muslim. And we have been able to form a, a really cool relationship uh, where we can talk openly about our faiths. Um, don't tell anybody at Costco. I, I do want to keep my job. Uh, but recently we were in the break room, and uh, she was talking about um, actually, I feel bad about this, but I'll tell you this part. She came up with a lean pocket, um, and she sat down, and I said, "Um." what are you doing? That's haram. Now, haram in in Islam is forbidden. I don't know why I knew. I have this thing of just knowing useless information sometimes. I don't know why I knew that there were pork derivatives in a lean pocket, Um, but I did. And of course, a quick Google search confirms that this is haram. Like a a Jew would say, this is unclean. You can't eat this. And so... uh, she gave me her lean pocket. I felt bad, but I did eat it. True story. I, I, <laughs> that's not why I did it. I ate it when I got home. I, my wife heated it up for me because I felt too, too guilty to do it myself. No guilt in eating it, though. But that was disgusting. Just stick with the straight hot pocket. Lean pockets are not good. That's totally beside the point. Um, um, but, so, we started talking about this haram halal thing and uh, halal is is permissible haram is forbidden uh the same as you know that we use is kosher or not kosher unclean or clean and uh she she started talking telling me about this dream she had of a costco chicken bake she said i have a dream that i had one that didn't have any bacon i said wow that's a really weird dream i've never dreamed about the costco food court ever um but then I thought, well, why don't you get one and, and, you know, pick the bacon out? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. Because what is haram cannot just all of a sudden become halal, right? What is, what is unclean can't just all of a sudden become clean. And I thought, well, I mean, what if you're eating a sandwich and I came by and I accidentally dropped a piece of bacon on it and I just picked it up real quick and said, oh, sorry. She said, well, it's contaminated. That sandwich, that halal, that permissible sandwich, is now haram. It is forbidden. And I thought, Whoa, this is this is radically different than my my Christian narrative, my Christian perspective. And she she was curious. She said, Well, I mean, what do you what do you mean? What what's so different? And I said, Well, see, in, in my Christian story, it's not about You know, clean becoming unclean. It's about a person who can reach out and touch uncleanliness and restore it. And I said, well, there's there's this story in the New Testament uh, about uh, a woman who had been menstruating for 12 years. She couldn't stop the bleeding, so she was probably hemorrhaging. So she she has this mental psyche, and that that means in in Mosaic law, she is ceremonially unclean. She cannot do religious functions. She can be around uh, men. She can be around other women who are are menstruating. So she was really uh, socially ostracized um, and socially marginalized. But she heard of this guy who, um, actually, at this point when I said that, she's... Um, the, the woman I was talking with, uh, she, she interrupted me and she said, oh, so that's, that's the same for you guys. She said, because see, when, when, when I'm on my cycle, I can't pray. I can't go to church. I can't be around any sort of religious functions. She said, so that woman, could she go to church? I said, no, I mean, she couldn't go to the synagogues, no. No. And she said, oh, so that's the same. And I said, well, no, well, no, 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 hear me out, hear me out. This, this woman heard of a man who was healing people, so she beelined it to Capernaum. That's 30 miles away from where she was. And after 30 miles, I would have thrown myself at the feet of, of this person, but she didn't. Uh, let me get uh, the verse here. Um, she said, the woman said to herself, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. So, this, this nameless, uh, bleeding woman who traveled 30 miles uh, was fueled nothing by faith. She was totally uh, socially unacceptable. And she went and she touched his clothes. Her willingness to believe she could be well again despite all evidence to the contrary was really miraculous. I think that's a miracle. And when she heard about the man who'd healed many of various diseases, that's what she did. And so when she touched him, what happened? She was healed. And 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 what's interesting here, by law, her touch would have made Jesus unclean. But by grace, just the opposite happened. She was made well. She was made whole simply by believing that Jesus could heal her and daring to act on that belief. When her faith was rewarded, she wasn't the only one who noticed, because Jesus turned around and he said, Who touched my clothes? See, her Her heart was probably pounding because she'd literally stolen a miracle. But, I mean, Jesus' disciples were like, everyone's touching you, Jesus. Like, literally everyone around here is touching you. But Jesus kept on. He said, who touched me? Right? That was penetrating to the person who knew what happened. But he wasn't, he wasn't looking uh, to... Um, you know beat this person down he was looking to affirm them and so she literally risked everything she she risked public humiliation she risked punishment by stoning for breaking the mosaic law but she came forward and made a confession of faith she explained to the crowd why she had touched him and that she'd been instantly healed this is after she fell at his feet trembling with fear but with a single word from Jesus, 12 years of pain were swept away. He said, daughter. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. In no other gospel account does Jesus use this term of endearment and respect. Daughter. Daughter. She was a member of the family now, restored to her community, setting an example for others who then, uh, Mark says, begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched were healed. And I I told uh, my Muslim friend, you see, my Christian story is not about unclean, contaminating the clean, but about about a person so willing to have uncleanliness thrusted upon him, not to condemn it, but to restore it. And there was just this silence for a little bit until she just nodded her head in in understanding. But I, I, I knew that that woman's story that woman's miracle some 2,000 years ago is still touching hearts today but what's really instructive about uh, this is that is when we're talking about halal and haram kosher, not kosher, clean and unclean we're not talking about uh, some sort of physical attribute you know we're not saying that um Cleanliness can be measured in kosher units or anything like that, uh, that you can put it on a, scare and, a scale and know the exact number of, you know, cleanliness or whatever, because um, they're not physical. We're saying that there is a spiritual element to the world. These are theological categories. And um, here, here's an analogy, because I think the same thing applies to miracles, A human being can be described in all sorts of ways, anatomically, physiologically, psychologically, sociologically, and so on. And a Christian really doesn't uh, need to have an axe to grind with any of these categories. But we will insist that there's an essential description that's missing, namely a theological one that should include something like created in the image of God or sinners and saints and, and miracles operate in much the same way. Uh, um, when you know, something miraculous happens, if someone, if someone sees a newborn baby, I can imagine right now that Chad and Bryn are looking at their daughter and saying, oh my goodness, this is a miracle. Or when someone looks out at the stars and they see God's handiwork in the universe. That's not to say that we don't have a scientific explanation for how children come about or that there isn't a a cosmological theory for how uh, there is a gaseous formation of ancient stars. All it's saying is that these physical descriptions are missing a potent and important theological description. Namely, created by God. If we see God's handiwork, it's because we're seeing it by faith. And in many ways, only faith can see miracles and understand miracles. And so when someone sees the splendor of creation, I think it would be just wrong to say, well, all that can be scientifically explained. I think that faith is is the lens whereby we see miracles. It's our theological description of the world. Because remember, it's a sign that points to Christ, and people who are willfully blind to seeing that aren't going to see Christ, and subsequently aren't going to see the miracle. And so my my points again are a miracle is not just something that defies scientific understanding. It is rather the manifestation or a sign that points to Christ. It's not the how. It's the why it occurs. Two, we do not know if or when miracles will occur. Only that we should live in faithful anticipation that they will. And three, a worldview that presupposes that God does not interact with the world in miraculous ways works to ensure the reality that it presupposes. In other words, if you have faith that it will not occur, it probably won't. And for that last point, miracles are often the result of how faith views the world. And that's the point I want to end on. And that's the point I want you to really go home with. Is if you begin to try to see the world through the lens of faith and see God's handiwork even in your own life, If you can look at the stars and see it there, look at yourself and find it there too. God works in miraculous ways in our own lives and in many ways. The only thing preventing us from seeing it is our own faith. And I have a a lot more to unpack and a lot more to talk about and that's why I have two more sermons on miracles. Um, But that's what I want you to go home with. Learn to see the world through the lens of faith and you'll begin to learn to see the miraculous. Will you pray with me? God, I just thank you so much for giving us Christian stories that we can share with one another. God, it's not theological doctrine and its explanation that really gets into our hearts. It's the stories of repentance. It's the stories of saving faith that penetrate us, God, And I just pray that you would allow us to see the value in in our stories as community. That you would allow us to put on that lens of faith and see miracles in the world and in our lives. God, that we would look at our lives and see your handiwork, see your movement, and see all of the signs you're putting in our life that point to you. God, I just thank you so much that you are still working, that you are still here, and that you are still performing miracles. And we love you in your precious name. Amen.